right, good morning again. Good to see all of you. So, I want to tell you all about something I love that you may not know about me. I love the space program. I love NASA. I love, like, the history of all of that. Some of it is I grew up in Houston, and so the Johnson Space Center was literally, like, in my backyard growing up in the city of Houston. How many of you have been to the Johnson Space Center, by the way? It was built in the 60s. Okay, Greg's been there. Good for you, Greg. And if you drive up to the Johnson Space Center, this is what you're going to see. You're going to see a 300-foot rocket laying on its side. This is one of the Saturn V rockets. These are people just going for a stroll, which, by the way, in the city of Houston, you don't really go for a stroll outside. It's usually very icky and hot. But if there's a giant rocket laying there, you want to go see it. Like, you want to go check it out. They have several of these in front of the Johnson Space Center in Houston. The building itself is nothing to look at. It's kind of a nondescript office building looking thing, but within the Johnson Space Center are things like this. This is the giant water tank where they train astronauts in zero gravity simulation. This is a photo from a couple of years ago. That's actually a European astronaut, an Italian gentleman who was learning how to pilot his suit in this gigantic pool at the Johnson Space Center. One of my favorite things there is this little room. Who knows what this room is? How many of you have seen the movie Apollo 13? This is mission control. This is where it happened. You can walk this close to mission control in your tour of the Johnson Space Center. This, this has uh, been mothballed. Obviously, they have a brand new, nice mission control now. But this is where the flight engineers and everybody tried to figure out how to get a man on the moon. It all happened here. You can even uh, kind of see up in the ceiling, you can see the stains from people's cigarette smoke for all the years that they were in there. Now, NASA would never have been in Houston. This dream of putting a person on the moon would never have happened if it wasn't for one president who was inaugurated in 1961, a young, charismatic man. How many of you know him? This gentleman, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, JFK. And I started to do a little bit dig digging into this this week. Uh, JFK came into office in January of 1961, and the country was kind of in turmoil. We were in the midst of the Cold War with the USSR. It was not going like we had hoped. There had been more scientific developments on their part. They had already put a person into orbit, like they kind of got the first astronaut up in the air. And so the American public was starting to feel like we were falling behind in an important conquest, at that time, the space race. Uh, there were also all kinds of discouraging things happen in, happening in society. We hadn't yet stepped into the large advent of the civil rights movement, but there was very much a growing awareness among the American public that something needed to be done there. So Kennedy had to kind of pick and choose what targets he wanted the American public to look at. When he chose the space race, he did not choose a target that was popular. At the time, 58% of Americans said, we don't need to spend a bunch of money to go into space. We need to deal with other problems. But President Kennedy wouldn't let it go. He went to the Congress in the winter of that year and pushed on them to fully fund this operation that later became known as NASA. And it was met with a collective meh from the people of Congress. How many times have we heard that before? But he wouldn't give up. He pressed on, he made it happen through a variety of executive orders and kind of shaking hands and getting people lined up. And finally, on September 12, 1962, he delivered a speech that many of us could probably recite by heart, the We Must Go to the Moon speech. 
This is a photo from the delivery of that speech. It's a miracle that in September of 1962, it wasn't so hot that this weak New Englander fell over in the city of Houston. This is in Rice University in a football stadium there. How many of you have ever been to Rice University? It's the Harvard of the South. It's a very well-regarded school. So President Kennedy gave an address to 40,000 people at Rice University to talk about the importance of the space program. The reason he did this is because the soul of what the United States was about, about moving forward, about progress, about conquest, as he phrases it in his speech, that was starting to ebb. The focus, the hope of the nation kind of rested on him, as it does on every president, and some take it seriously and some don't. I want to read just a little bit of the speech that President Kennedy offered, because I think it's analogous to some of the message that's being presented in our scripture passage today. Listen to this. This is the president addressing 40,000 people at a football stadium. We set sail on this new sea, he's talking about space exploration, because there is new knowledge to be gained, new rights to be won, and they must be won and used for the progress of all people. For space science, like nuclear science and all technology, has no conscience of its own. Whether it will become a force for good or ill depends on humankind. And only if the United States occupies a position of preeminence can we help decide whether this new ocean will be a sea of peace or a new terrifying theater of war. Remember, the specter of nuclear war hung tightly over the American public. He didn't sidestep people's fears, but he didn't make this speech about people's fears. Then he turns to the most famous passage of his speech. We choose to go to the moon. I get goosebumps as I hear this. I hope you do too. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and to do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one which we intend to win, and the others too. President Kennedy was arguing for the sake of his people, the American public, that they needed a clear and powerful and compelling goal to pursue together. That's what the space program was initially about. Yes, we needed to step into this in a big way, but isn't it going to be expensive? Isn't it going to be time-consuming? Aren't there other things that we could prioritize? This is the challenge facing the New Testament church. This letter of 1 John that we're going to be looking at together over the next couple of weeks, this was written to a church that was wrestling with its identity, with its very soul, in the midst of the expansion of the movement of Jesus. For the first time in the history of the church, there were starting to be major theological debates about different things that were arising from a variety of teachers, some of whom claimed to follow Jesus and some of whom were a little adjacent to that and had their own agendas. It was the first time in the history of the church that you had to ask yourself the question, is this teaching trustworthy? Should I be listening to this? And so in the midst of that, this author, John, John the Apostle, John who spent tons of time with Jesus, not John the Baptist, John the Disciple, he's writing this letter and saying to the church, we must go forward with the truth. How do you address heresy? How do you address kind of the breakdown of a theological enterprise? Some, some people would say you just need to stand up there and just kind of take a whack at it. But what John says 
is he points toward this greater good, this greater glory that is present in Jesus Christ, that the light of Christ will sort of bathe out and block out and push out all the darkness that's starting to creep into the church, a little bit like the President of the United States saying, I know this sounds crazy, but we need to go to the moon because that will help us move forward. That will help galvanize us and motivate us for mission. Our church has wrestled with a sense of mission the whole time that I've been here. Who, do, who are we here for? For whom do we exist? We originally started in a family's living room and people gathered together for fellowship and to watch a video from Green Lake. Well, that is not where we are anymore, friends. So who are we here for? Why did God call us into Inglewood Presbyterian Church in 2019 to share this space together? Who's around us that we have yet to reach? A statistic that just kind of reminded me of the precariousness of our situation this week. 96% of our neighbors do not know Jesus. 96%. You sit in this room among the 4% who do. And are we okay with 96% of our neighbors facing an eternity without Jesus Christ? Because I'm not. But I believe that is our moonshot. I believe that as a small church, a family church, a nimble church, a church that is creative and has a wonderful space to do ministry in and a wonderful reputation in the neighborhood, I think this letter is our moon landing, our speech carrying us into a brave new future. I do. Because I think if we look at it carefully, we will hear this call to love God and to love others. And the only response we can have to that is to love sacrificially and to draw our neighbors into this wonderful good news of the gospel. So we're gonna take a look at that today through three different headings. We're gonna kind of set the context for the letter that Tyler just read a piece of it for us. We're gonna talk about the call to love one another and then a hope that we have every week during this series is to finish with the next step where we take a step toward loving God better and take a step toward loving others better. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John. We will be in chapter four today. We chose to start in chapter four because I believe the passage that we heard read for us a moment ago is kind of the thesis statement of the whole book. So we will talk about what's happening around that and then we'll get into the particular text. First of all, who is the author of this book? Uh, Anybody wanna guess? His name's in the title, come on. John, thank you very much. This is one of my favorite paintings of uh, Peter and John running to the empty tomb. It's from a French patron named Eugene Bonan from 1898. John is the young man on the left. Peter is the older man on the right. It's Easter morning. The sun's coming up. They have heard that the tomb is empty. They gotta go see it. They can't believe it. And if you can look closely on their faces, Peter's brow is furrowed, his eyes are wide. He's kind of holding his garments as he tries to run as quickly as he can. And then the much younger man next to him, John, he's, he's looking forward with this anticipation, wringing his hands, not sure what's gonna happen next. John is the disciple in the white there, and he's introduced in Mark chapter one as a pair of brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They are called from fishing into ministry. They did not go to seminary. They did not do Bible college. They were literally brought with fish scales on their hands into the work of ministry. I love that. And from uh, what most scholars believe, this John, remember not John the Baptist, John the disciple, he wrote John's gospel, he wrote the book of Revelation, and then he wrote the letters of one, two, and three, John. 
most likely those are all his authorship. That's a pretty significant chunk of the New Testament that this young man wrote over time. He was one of the original disciples of Jesus Christ. The gospel accounts tell us he was one of the youngest disciples. That's important to keep in mind because the gospel of John, most scholars believe, or excuse me, 1 John, most scholars believe was written in about 100 AD. Now, if you kind of follow interpretation of the timeline there, that's the time in which at least one generation, if not two, had already passed from when Jesus was resurrected. So the group of people who spent time with Jesus, who were literally at table with him like John was, who were there with him in the garden as he wept, who were there at the transfiguration, all places where John is mentioned in scripture as being present, that group of people was starting to die out. They were starting to get fewer and fewer in number. This is the World War II generation of our day where there's just fewer and fewer of those folks who lived that journey and remember those days. And so from John's vantage point, he needs to get these stories out. He needs to get clarity into the church that he loves so much about the truth about Jesus Christ. Because he's seen some stuff. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's seen some stuff. Like he has seen some things. He has watched Jesus in agony, right? In the the Garden of Gethsemane, it was not a fun time for Jesus, but there's John sitting with him. He has watched Jesus selflessly serve people, even in the midst of his betrayal on the night that he was betrayed when he broke bread with his disciples. He himself has suffered. John was exiled to the island of Patmos, living all by himself with very little to subsist on. He was thrown into a prison with Peter. He knows how much it costs to keep following after Jesus Christ, and he still does it, and he still believes in it. Now, as I mentioned, it's 100 AD, so there's been kind of a generational shift, and then there's some heresy starting to kind of bubble up. Heresy simply means half-truth. It means if you look at the truth and you kind of turn it one angle to the right, that's what you're looking at when you're looking at heresy. And there are some pretty major heresies beginning to crop up at the time of John writing this letter. The divinity and humanity of Jesus was being called into question. A group of people were saying, well, you know, he wasn't fully God or he wasn't fully human. He was God pretending to be human, which we know from the orthodox interpretation of the scriptures is not true. Uh, People were starting to call into question whether sin was really that big of a deal. Well, you know, sin's just a thing that you deal with in your life. Like, you don't have to worry about that when you go to heaven. So why is sin such a big deal? And then another heresy that was starting to kind of come up was, how do we know what's true? How do we know when God is saying something to the people? Very important question to ask no matter what. But there was a group of people saying, I know what God's doing. I know what God's up to. But they wouldn't say that in conjunction to their faith in Jesus Christ. They would simply just say it, like, okay, well, I know what to do over here. How do you discern that? These are major themes in this letter that John wrote. John wrote this letter not just to one church, but to several churches. This is what's known as an encyclical. This is a map of the ancient Near East, and I put this arrow here to point toward Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Anybody been to Turkey, by the way? I've heard it's just wonderful for kind of, like, walking through the history of the church. So Ephesus, as you can tell, is in a pretty key spot in the Mediterranean Sea, right? You've got Israel over here and Italy and Rome are up here. So if you were part of a church planting movement, a group of people that seek to be on mission for Jesus, you would want to be near the sea so that you could get around by boat to all these different parts of the world that had yet to hear about Jesus. 
This is an important strategic location. There are lots of other churches planted in the same region at the same time. As truth is able to spread quickly into a group of people, so can heresy spread quickly into a group of people. So John, having some kind of connection to the churches in and around Ephesus, wrote this letter that we just read from to be shared among the churches, read together, studied together, talked about. And like President Kennedy's speech, he doesn't focus on what he is most fearful of. As a leader in the church, it would kill me to know that there was heretical things moving around among the people that I love and care for and have been entrusted with as a shepherd. It'd be like feeding my children junk food all the time and being surprised when they get sick. I don't want that. And I think John felt a similar sense of responsibility to these churches and to the future of the church. And so he wants to address this heresy head on, but you know what's really counterproductive? When you face something difficult and you just start yelling at it or you just start railing about it. That's what Twitter used to be for. That's not what this is. This is a skillful positively focused addressing of heresy by pointing toward the greatest answer to any of this, the truth of Jesus Christ. Just like Kennedy pointed toward the beauty and the possibility of what could be accomplished in a mission to space, so is John pointing toward the beauty of the gospel and saying, look, if you recognize how good this is, you will leave behind that darkness and that nonsense of that heresy. Move toward the truth. Move toward the goodness of Jesus Christ. That will satisfy you, church. So let's get into the text. This is the first part of the passage that Tyler read for us. We'll kind of read it and go through it a little bit. Again, we're going to go through this over the next few weeks. So we'll touch on some things today that I promise we'll be able to go into depth. We'll be able to go into a little bit more depth in the weeks to come. So 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us like one another. Let us enjoy one another socially. No. Come on, church, say it with me. Let us... Love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. The word love, five times in two verses. It's a lot of referencing to the word love. And guess what? It's agape love. There's all these different words for love in the New Testament, but agape love, A-G-A-P-E, is God's love directed toward human beings. That's what is being referred to here. And y'all know this because I've used this a zillion times and I'll keep using it. My favorite definition of agape love is love which seeks the flourishing of the object upon which it is directed. That comes from our old buddy, Dr. Dallas Willard. And we'll talk about what that looks like at the end, but the way I would summarize what agape love looks like is this. Agape love says, I will move stuff around in my life so that you can flourish. I will put aside some kind of schedule that I made or some to-do list. I will reorder my day because I care about you having the best possible experience. I care about you encountering the love of God. I care about you not beating yourself up anymore and being free from guilt and shame. Yes, it will be costly. Yes, I might not get as many things done in my day. Oh, well. It is more important to me that you do well than for me to have a sense of accomplishment. This is hard for us, by the way. It's hard for me. It's hard to jettison my expectations of what I thought my day would be about or what I thought I would be drawn into when something arises that I can give myself to like God gives himself to us in agape love. Human beings will not be able to love others perfectly, but we can move toward this kind of selfless 
expression of the gospel. Uh, A scholar I admire puts it this way, the gospel is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Agape love is not thinking less of yourself, beating yourself up. Agape love is thinking of yourself less and thinking of others more. I will do stuff in my life. I will move things around so that you can do better. That's what Jesus has done for us. This is the incarnation. Him coming to be with us and be one of us. This is John pointing toward the truth as a means to say, get away from that darkness. Come over here into the light. The light is so much more glorious and so much more beautiful than any heresy, church. And I think he moved the needle forward on this. Now, there's two different things that we need to touch on in the rest of the passage today. They're gonna be very brief. We're gonna talk about what we receive when we choose to follow Jesus Christ and then what we invite others into. So write receive and write invite if you're kind of a note taker. This is the receive passage. God's love is revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. We receive this from Jesus. What do I mean? We can live through him. We can have life. The New Testament word there is zoe, life abundantly, life fully, life with passion and with joy. Not trying to get through your days, but having a joy and a spring in your step, not all the time, but as a means to experience this incredible love of God. We can live like this. By the way, you know who knew a lot about this, knew how to live fully, and knew how Jesus Christ could deliver the fullness of life, even in the most adverse circumstances? John, the author of this book. He had been to jail, and he had seen Jesus free him and Peter from jail. Look at Acts chapter four on your own time. He had been marooned, abandoned on an island, left for dead. And Jesus met him there and gave him this incredible vision of the future. Do you think John knew a little bit about the kind of life that God could give him in the midst of adversity? Absolutely. I'll tell you what, I don't think a whole lot about the life that God can give me when I'm in the midst of adversity. I'm just trying to fix stuff. I just go into solution mode, man. Like, give me some duct tape and a screwdriver and like, let's get this done. That doesn't turn out very well for me. I would rather be someone who enters into suffering or pain or distress and enters into it with God. Saying, God, would you just join me in this? This is hard. One of my children is struggling. God, would you walk right next to me as I try to walk beside my child? A neighbor or a friend faces a period of time where they need that compassion that we just spent the last couple of weeks talking about. God, would you equip and enable me to do this? I can spin up all kinds of plans in my mind, but what I really want to do is what you want to do. Would you do that for me? How many of us take that pause and just say, okay, God, you're in charge. Let me get behind whatever you are getting behind in this moment. The people of God receive this gift from God that we can live through him. And this gift comes through his son, Jesus Christ. The second thing that we need to pay attention to is in verse 10. This is what we are inviting others into, that 96% of the people around us who know nothing of God, who maybe have heard about Jesus or heard a mockery of Jesus or they have all kinds of assumptions of what it means to take the gospel seriously, we need to invite people into what verse 10 makes so clear. In this is love. In other words, if you want to have a picture of love painted in front of you, this is what it looks like. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
You can't take love seriously if you don't take sin seriously. A lot of churches talk all about love but will not talk about sin. As we preach through 1 John, we will talk about sin. Because in order to understand how deeply loved you are, you have to understand how deeply broken you are. So I love that this is included here, but here's the part I really want to highlight. Our neighbors don't know this. This is the invitation we can offer to them. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. You can almost insert the word, he first loved us. Most people assume that in a religious system, a religious enterprise, if you will, you have to sort of put in your ante, right? Like this is like playing poker. You ante up. You put your chips in, and then God will do something for you, right? Like this is how a lot of people operate in the world. It is sort of a a give and receive kind of thing. The problem with that is that's not the gospel. The gospel is God first loved us. God made the first move. God initiated. We respond. We didn't come up with the idea of the gospel. We did not come up with the idea of the incarnation. He did. And thanks be to God for that because then we don't have to muster up some sort of spiritual lather to say, I'm worthy, God. You can invite me in. Look at me. I've got this covered. Here are my chips. I'm in the game now. No, 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 no. And while many of you I know have followed Jesus a long time and there's clarity in your heart and sort of in your soul around this, you understand the gospel, your neighbors do not. Your colleagues and coworkers, they do not. They might look at your kind of religious devotion somewhat admiringly. They might look at it begrudgingly. I have a friend who works in tech, and he, I asked him one time, hey, what do your fellow you know, engineers and people in the tech industry think about when you tell them you're a Christian? He said they kind of laugh at it politely. They think it's a little silly and childish. Like, oh, I thought you were intelligent. I guess not. That is what we are talking about addressing with the goodness of the gospel that there is a God wildly in love with the people of this earth and he moved heaven and earth. He sent his son from the heavens and into the earth to rescue us at great cost to himself. We're reminded of this every time we come to the communion table. Remember, this is the costly cup of Christ. It cost him everything. That's not childish belief. That's not pixie dust and fairies. That holds water. That, that's intellectually integral. That makes sense in the real world. To follow a God who sacrificed first for us. We receive this love from God. We invite others into it. How do we do that? I promise you guys there would be some practical steps. So on your way out today... I want to offer something to you that might look a little intimidating at first, but I want, to, want you to hang in there with me. It's just a sheet of paper that you can pick up on the table on your way out. It's a weekly overview of your schedule. I know we all love our schedules, but a friend of mine who's a church planter challenged me to do this, to think about my day and my time as surrendered to God. So on one side, there's all these little blocks of time, 30-minute blocks, and on the top, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the days of the week, right, x-axis and y-axis. And so what I want y'all to do is take one of these sheets, uh, use a pencil to fill it in, I learned that the hard way, and fill in what your time looks like every week. Just, you know, your ideal week or what a typical week looks like for you. Like, well, I meet with my Bible study on this day and then I have lunch with a friend and then I do this. Maybe there's lots of time in your week where there's not a lot going on. That's okay too. 
But the opportunity for us is to say, look, if I want to be serious about loving God with more and more of the wholeness of my heart, I need to look at one of the primary gifts God has given to me, the gift of time. I want to ask myself, am I offering this time back to God? Do I see this time as his time? When I'm sitting in class for my master's degree, when I am meeting with other people, when I go to the coffee shop and have the same conversation with my barista every single Monday about the weather and how the Seahawks did and all that, do I see that as an opportunity to just plant a seed of the goodness of the love of God? Or do I just see it as going to my coffee shop? It will help all of us reframe the way we think about time to just write out what we do, roughly, and then to picture those places in advance of going to them and saying, God, what would you have me do here? How would you have me enter into this? Again, I want to offer that as a means to saying we need to be able to love others better. And if we think about the others that we encounter in these places that we go to, who's around you, who's proximate to you, we might actually see them with the eyes that God sees us with. That's kind of part one. Part two is how we can love others better. And this involves baseball. So, many of you know, I'm not going to hit anything with this, I promise. Not intentionally. Um, I got to coach my son's little league team this past year. And I had the most amazing time, but one of the greatest gifts in that team were my fellow coaches. I had a bunch of assistant coaches, people I had never met before. Many of you have had this experience before, coaching your kids' sports programs or volunteering and things. You just kind of get thrown into the mix with all these people that you've never met before, most of whom, 96% of whom, do not know Jesus Christ. So I got to know these assistant coaches on my team. One of them was a guy named Jeremy, and he's a great guy. Jeremy was the only one of us, of any of the coaches, who had actually played baseball. (laughs) (laughs) so he actually knew what he was doing but he was the most humble guy I it took me half a season to get out of him that not only did he play baseball in high school not only did he start in college for his college's division one baseball team he was a four-year letterman at the shortstop position for central washington university so this guy's not a small cup of tea like he knows what he's doing on the baseball field but he was the most humble guy and he came to me at the beginning of the season he said hey how do you want me to help which, if you're coaching, you're like, oh, thank God. Like, someone, like, who isn't telling me what they're going to do for me. Someone that's really open-handed about this. So I said, Jeremy, I'd love for you to be our hitting coach. So Jeremy, every single practice, would work one-on-one with just a couple of our kids. And they would go stand over by the fence, and he'd have his tee set up, and the kid would grab the bat and just kind of work on their swing. And he'd watch them swing over and over and over again. Just little things, just kind of pouring into them individually. And Jeremy's son played on the team as well, so he was investing in him, but I loved watching him invest in each kid one-on-one. We'd be running other drills, but then each kid would have a chance to come over and work with Jeremy on their swing. And one day, Jeremy was working with a kid named August. August is one of my favorite kids on our team. He was quiet. He just moved to town. He didn't know anybody yet. You guys, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen this before. But he was a sweet kid, and his mom, single mom, came up to me the first day of practice and said, hey, We're new here. We're excited to be on your team. August has never played before. All he's played is hockey. I'm like, well, that's great because he knows how to swing a stick. Like, let's get him up there and, like, have him go work with Jeremy. And so him and Jeremy are working together. And August, bless him, you know, he's holding the bat kind of funny and he can't really move his hips through the ball. And, you know, it just, it's looking kind of difficult for him. 
And so Jeremy's working with him, and he's talking to him, and Jeremy just so patient with him. And I was so impressed that they worked together week after week after week on August Swing, because I know Jeremy probably felt a little frustrated. And I know he's probably thinking like, man, I could be helping all these other kids, but I need to give my time to him. But he had the best attitude about it. It really touched my heart. And then one day, Jeremy and August were working together. This was several weeks into the season. And Jeremy turns to August, and he says, August, you've been swinging like this the whole time. Have you ever tried hitting left-handed? And August goes, what's that? So turn the other way, hold the bat the opposite direction, and swing differently. I'm not left-handed. I can't hit left-handed. Most people can either hit left or right-handed. My son is a lefty just by nature of it. But August, who'd been trying to hit right, all of a sudden faces the other direction. And guess what? He can hit. He turned into one of our best hitters, hitting from the left side of the plate, which he didn't even know existed. Wasn't even a possibility in his mind. Like, wait, you mean there's another way to do this? Here's the point I'm trying to make. That definition of agape love. I will move my life around so you can do better. I will make sacrifices so that you can have the opportunity that you deserve. That's what Jeremy did with August. Day after day after day of practice, working with him. And because he hung in there, because he was so devoted to helping that young man grow, August had the chance to do something that he'd never done before. He got to feel successful at baseball. He got to really get a sense of like, hey, I belong on this team. You could just see his confidence grow. One of the other coaches and I were talking recently, and we both agreed that was one of our favorite parts of the whole season was just seeing this kid find his swing and get better at the game. So gratifying. But it wouldn't have happened if Jeremy had said, I don't have time for this. Like, August, go back over there. We'll just hit you at the bottom of the order. I think the way that Jeremy looked at August and devoted his time to him is an example of how God looks at us and says, you're worth it, Zach. I'm going I'm to help you figure that swing out. You are worth it, Jesse. I'm going to pour my time into you so you can be the best husband and father that you can possibly be. Michelle, you are worth it. I'm going to sit with you and I'm going to ride shotgun with you through all the ups and downs that you have in front of you. We need to be reminded that our God pours his love into our lives like Jeremy did with August. We need to be reminded of that love because, guys, nothing is going to animate us. No speech at Rice University is going to move us like knowing that we are beloved and trusting the God who loves us so deeply. Nothing will ever change unless we receive that love with fresh eyes and fresh ears. So I invite you to grab one of those schedule thingies on the way out, I invite you as well to join me in a word of prayer as we uh, prepare to transition and worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have done everything for us. There's, there's literally nothing we could do to outmatch you or to go bigger than you have gone in sending your son to rescue us. And we need to be reminded of this. And we're so grateful that your scriptures call us not toward a religion or a set of axioms and principles. Your scripture calls us to the truth. And just like you helped the churches in Ephesus and the churches that received this letter from 1 John, you helped them move away from darkness and into light. Would you move us now, Lord, as we sing, as we pray, as we get ready to be sent forth, 
as we consider how our time is used, as we think about pouring out agape love for the sake of others. God, fill us with incredible courage to bless and serve and minister to those around us. 96% of people facing an eternity without you, Lord. It must not be so. And yet we would be so uh, destined for failure if we tried to do this on our own. And so over these next few weeks, remind us through the good news presented to us in this letter in 1 John that we are beloved, that the love that you have poured out through your son Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of what love can look like. And that your desire for us as your children is to move us ever closer to those who don't yet know you and to share your love with them in ways that make sense to them and that changes our hearts too. We give the rest of our time to you and worship now. We ask in the name of Christ.